Welcome to the sermon ministry of River Community Church, a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana. Our purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org. Our word from the Lord comes from Genesis chapter 9, verses 18 to 29. This is the word of the Lord. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servants. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come to you with your word opened and your word proclaimed. We know that you put this word in our Bible because it has timeless and relevant truth. And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give each and every one of us attention, ears to hear, hearts that are open. And, Father, that your word might do what your word must do, and that is not return void. Father, give me the ability to preach today, not my word, but your word that it might be explained, made clear, made applicable. And Father, may it not bring any glory to me, but may it bring all the glory to you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Okay. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I think that is a... um, a pretty at-hand phrase for most people, for even ourselves, whenever something uh, comes that requires us to, to explain, it's not our fault, or it wasn't me, the words, I'm a good person, come out. We hear that uh, from our neighbors, we hear that on television, we hear that uh, often, the idea that I'm a good person lands in, in, off of almost everyone's lips. I'm a good person is probably the number one 
phrase that we use to justify ourselves. We use the, the truth, well, I'm not that bad, I'm a, I'm a good person, as the way to feel like we're going to be okay. Whatever this uh, whole uh, life after death thing is, I know I'm on the right side of the curve. I'm a good person. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't stolen anything. I've not done anything bad at all. Today's text, for all of its strangeness, is here to pull out the rug from the justification of I'm a good person. Because in this passage, we watch the only person on the face of the earth The righteous Noah end poorly. The title of this sermon is If I Ruled the World, which uh, is really what we get to see Noah. Noah has the opportunity to start fresh, to rule the world, to make it just the way it was supposed to be. If I Ruled the World is also a uh, famous song by the crooner Tony Bennett. Uh, I'd like to share just a couple of the things that Tony Bennett would do Uh, If he ruled the world, he should run for president. If I ruled the world, every day would be the first day of spring. Every heart would have a new song to sing, and we'd sing of the joy every morning would bring. If I ruled the world, every man would be as free as a bird. Every voice would be a voice to be heard. Take my word, we would treasure each day that occurred. My world would be a beautiful place where we would weave such wonderful dreams. My world would wear a smile on its face like the man in the moon has when the moon beams. That's just part of Bennett's beautiful vision of if he ruled the world. I think that that song is popular. I think that song captures us because if we can't say I'm a good person... Many times we believe it's because something in our environment, something in our upbringing, something in the circumstances of our life have limited us or spoiled us or given us an unfair shake. But we kind of fundamentally think, you know, if if I had the opportunity, if I ruled the world, if I had a fresh start, if I had it my way, I'd nail it. I'd get it right. Today's text asks the question, what would happen if the most righteous person had the chance to start the whole world over again? This is the answer to your question, if I ruled the world, would it be different? Would I be different? Because here we have the most righteous person getting a second chance to rule the whole world. We've, we've had this image of the chasm uh, for uh, Genesis 4 through 11, because that is an image of what sin has created. Sin has, has created a chasm between us and God. It has made us far from God, from his presence, and it has pointed us away from God, and that it has made us desire the things that God says we should not desire. And so Genesis 4 through 11 is, is showing again and again that we live far and away from God. But the question that the narrative has in front of us is, does that chasm still exist now that the flood has happened, has taken away all of the unrighteous, all of the evil, and has left us with the one righteous man walking on the earth? Is the chasm removed by the flood? Unfortunately, as we look at this passage, as bizarre as it is, 
Noah's failure is shown. Noah's failure to live out his uh, to live out righteousness in this renewed creation is here to teach us man's inability to overcome sin from within. Uh, that, that's that's the gist of this passage. Noah's failure serves to show us that our ability to overcome sin is not something that lies within. And I believe as we look at this text carefully, we're going to see four answers to this question. Why are we unable to overcome sin's power by ourselves? We must take this to heart. It's, it's hard news. As I, as I look back on the sermons that we've had to preach on sermons 4 through 11, there has been a lot of focus on the nature and attributes and, and severity of sin. But the scriptures give that to us graciously because it wants to disabuse the idea that if you ruled the world, if you could truly have everything your way, things would work out just fine for you. So why are we unable to overcome sin's power by ourselves? I believe this text is going to give us four reasons. First, because we sin without excuse. Second, we sin with ease. Third, we sin with enjoyment. And fourth, we sin without exception. Let us go to this text in detail and look at this this first reason why we are unable to overcome sin's power by ourselves. We sin without excuse. Listen again to verses 18 to 21. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these people, from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. This is the perfect second chance, right? God has removed all of the evil. He has wiped away with the judgment all of the unrighteous, and he has left only Noah and his family. This is the second chance. This is Tony Bennett's opportunity to fulfill his dream of ruling the world. This is what Noah has. And we need to recognize this story is, is, is here to help us understand what happens even when we get a second chance. Because here's, here's my expect, experience. Most of us, including myself, we justify our failures and our sins by pointing to the things we can't control. I, I have a, a, an anger problem because I was yelled at when I was brought up. We, we act this way because of our surroundings, our upbringings, our predicaments put us in situations where we just didn't have a good choice and so we sin. Our circumstances have made us unable to avoid bad choices. And we've been conditioned and broken down and beaten up. And so we, we, are, we are sinners because of the environment and we're just trying to do the best that we can. There's truth in in these statements. There's truth in these excuses. Uh, Our upbringing and circumstances and things outside of our control do set in front of us bad choices and do incline us towards sinful habits. But what this passage helps us see 
is the truth behind all of this. You see, we tell ourselves, if this hadn't happened, if, if I wasn't put in this situation, things would be different. Maybe there's truth to that, but there's also a lie, a serious lie, and that is the lie that we are being justified by excuses. We are being justified by excuses. We are saying in all of those things that get in the way of of us performing or accomplishing the true good that we want to accomplish is because of things that have happened on the outside. When we use justification by excuses, we are simply saying the, the only reason I'm not good is not really my fault. That's what is being said. And Noah's fall in this passage invalidates this. Because he had the perfect second chance, and yet he fails. As one commentator says, with the opportunity to start an ideal society, Noah was found drunk in his tent. That is what we see of Noah. We have Noah in the world with no one else, a world made clean, a world made fresh, a world made fertile. Every part of this world goes back to Noah. Noah had everything. But he fails. This is the troubling thing about the story here in chapter 9. Noah shows that we have all that we need to fall from righteousness inside of us. There were no excuses for Noah. There was no uh, the environment. There was no my upbringing. There was no uh, uh, I I don't have a, 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 a chance in this world. He had everything, and yet he falls. Because the truth is that unrighteousness comes not primarily from outside, but from within. It is something in our nature. As we were told last week in chapter 8, verse 21, God tells us what is the condition of man. He says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. But see those words, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's not outside, it is the heart that brings the sin into the world. And that is what we see with Noah in this passage. I don't know if you saw uh, a couple years ago, there was a blockbuster movie called uh, Interstellar, big action movie. But the, there's a major uh, uh, plot point in the, in the movie about this one man named Dr. Man who was sent out to explore a far-off planet to see if it's habitable because the, the earth is becoming unsustainable. And if we don't find a planet to, to escape to, we're all going to die. So, so this man, Dr. Man, uh, is basically a, a, a futuristic Noah. He is sent out to find a planet. And if he finds a good planet, he's supposed to radio back, I found a place where we can all live. And so we have for the majority of the movie this news that Dr. Man has found a planet that's going to save the world. All we need to do is get to where Dr. Man has gotten to. And so this expedition sets out to find Dr. Man, and when they get there, they find that Dr. Man had lied. The place that he had found was horrible, absolutely inhospitable, but he lied 
because he wanted to be saved from that place. And the only way he could be saved was lying and bringing the people to him. Dr. Mann was was called again and again the best of us. And we saw as the best of us got out on his own and lived in a world all to himself, that he acted out of a nature of selfishness and cowardice. I think it's an insight of the movie that man left to himself is his own worst enemy. And that is what we see in the story of Noah. Noah is the best of us, and yet he fails. Noah doesn't get drunk because he has problems. Noah has no problems in the world. Noah and his sin strips away our excuses and reveals the brutal truth of our sinning. We choose to sin. That's the brutal choice. We sin without excuse. We are the reason we sin. The fault of our sin is in us. And so as we face the the predicament of Noah, what what do we have to, to take away at this point? We have to take away this point that we have to stop saying, I'd be good if, or I would be okay if, or my reasons and my, my problems are outside of myself. The, the point of Noah is you have to look at yourself. You have to accept the responsibility that you have sinned and sin by choice. Your deliverance does not come with excuses. Your deliverance comes with accepting the reality that you are the problem, that sin is from your heart. Look at at the difference in Luke chapter 18 between the person who comes in making excuses and justifications for his righteousness, the Pharisee, versus the tax collector, who was a a known sinner of of significance in the culture. He he took money from the Jews and gave them to the oppressors. Jesus ends this parable by telling us about the tax collectors, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, if we live in the land of I'm a good person but these excuses, or we make excuses for why we are the way that we are, bad marriage, bad family, whatever, we are cutting ourselves off from justification. Because justification, according to Christ, is to cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner, to accept responsibility, to allow Christ's grace into your life. We sin without excuse, but second, Noah shows us that we sin with ease. Let us look at verses 20 to 23. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw, sorry, yeah, Ham, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers, 
outside. So Noah, in the best of all possible worlds, in the perfect second chance, plants a vineyard, gets drunk, and acts like a buffoon. We sin with ease. Now the narrative here is, is silent on Noah. Is, is, is the narrative here judging that Noah uh, drank too much wine, got drunk, and got naked? You know, you can't find a word in the text that is moralizing on Noah. But I think that is because of the way that the Hebrew narrative often works is it, is, is it will withhold the judgment as a narrative device to call the reader in to say, you know what's wrong here. It makes it a far more involving reading to recognize when you, you read your hero Noah getting drunk and laying naked like a buffoon that your mind, without the scriptures having to say it, goes, oh no, what have you done, Noah? And the text is written in this very chaste way so that your, your judgment has to leap out and say, ah, why? Why, Noah? Why did you do this, Noah? Everything was, was good. Now we have here the issue of, of, of alcohol abuse as the sin that Noah falls into. And since alcohol is a, a, a topic that, that, that comes up in Scripture and that we need to talk about, I do want to address the teaching of the Scriptures on alcohol. Clearly, to drink wine or alcohol is not a sin in the Scriptures. It is not a sin to have consumed some alcohol. We, we look at a place like uh, Psalm 104, 14 and 15 you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine is one of the good things that God uses or, or has provided, and, and its purpose is to provide gladness to the heart. However, to say that, that wine and the consumption of some wine is not in and of itself a sin is not to say that drunkenness is okay. Drunkenness is thoroughly and roundly cited as a serious sin in Scripture. Simply Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And so we have this, this situation in Scripture where alcohol in and of itself is not sinful, but the use of alcohol can become very sinful. And that requires Christians to approach this with wisdom and with judgment. And Christian approaches uh, vary between a, a view of complete abstention from alcohol or a view of moderation from alcohol. Moderation being that some alcohol is okay, but it is never okay to be drunk. Abstention is, I would rather not drink than have any participation in the sins that, that alcohol can bring. Frankly, this is an area of, of Christian liberty. You have to make up your own mind uh, on what is the most wise path to take. However, whatever path we take must be submitted in love to the care of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are 
cautioned strongly by Paul not to allow our sense of liberty to ever become a stumbling stone for someone who is not uh, able to, to handle such things. So if you know that you're in the company of someone who struggles with alcohol, or if you think you might be in the company of someone who struggles with alcohol, the scriptures say out of graciousness and wisdom to avoid partaking in that person's company. And in all cases, not to be drunk. So the fact that we have Noah here drunk is clearly Noah in sin. And this is the second thing Noah shows us about sin. Even though he is all by himself the righteous person on earth, he shows us why we cannot overcome sin because we sin with ease. I mean, this is something that really kind of irks me about sin is usually you can sin effortlessly. It's easier to sin than it is to be righteous. I mean, what does Noah have to do here? He just has to lose self-control. He just has to give in to some indulgence. He just has to say, one more cup. And he is able to fall into sin. A moment of indulgence, a moment of laziness, is to fall into sin. Sin is easy. The, the, the teaching that we have here when we look at it is, is that righteousness is hard, but sin is easy. And it is because of that that we recognize we are ill-suited to overcome the power of sin because we go for the easy. We fall into the easy sins. Sin wins because it's usually the path of least resistance. But third, we sin with enjoyment. We sin with enjoyment. Now we look at this bizarre occasion of, of uh, ham. Uh, ham. What are you doing? Let's look at this uh, carefully. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. Here again, before we get into this bizarre passage, you see the, the dichotomy between the hardness of righteousness and the easiness of sin. All Ham had to do was just see. Shem and Japheth had to put this garment over their head, had to put their eyes this way, had to walk backwards, had to go to great lengths to make sure that they don't do anything that uh, humiliates their father. But what's Ham doing here? We, we see in this passage that we sin with enjoyment. And that's when we look at the story of Ham. Now, commentators are... are mixed on what this could be. There's some proposals that we have a, a, a euphemistic account here that's kind of scrubbed some sort of details out of what Ham did. Because as you read the text, you're like, is that it? That's all that happened? The sordid details usually include some sort of sexual sin or sexual violation. And uh, I don't think that those are the best reading of the text although I can't discount the possibility entirely, because I think what is said here is enough to give us a full understanding of, of Ham's sin. 
I want us to first of all recognize that Ham is, is not young. This isn't, this isn't just a kid stumbling upon his uh, undressed dad. He's, he's a grown man. Okay? He's got his own kids. And what does Ham do? He, he, he finds his father in a state of humiliation, in a, in a state of disgrace. And he uses that information to go and try and share it with his brothers. It's a, it's a way to humiliate his father. It is to publish his shame. Uh, that's basically the meaning of nakedness here. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 7, that, that nakedness becomes associated with shame in the Hebrew mind now that sin has entered the world. So that, that uh, Ham is going out and talking about the, the nakedness of his, of his father he is publishing and promoting the disgrace of his dad. He's gossiping. He's trying to get his, his brothers to, to fall into this salacious story. For what end, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of possibilities. But fundamentally, he's violating the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. You, you, you should never seek to humiliate and embarrass your father and your mother. Well, what's motivating him? I... I I'm not sure. It could be exploitation. You could imagine uh, having this information, having this, this dirt on Noah, perhaps would help him in a, in a, a, a situation to his favor by, by blackmailing, perhaps. It, it could be there's some degeneracy in, in Ham, that there's some thrill in seeing a 600-year-old man. Um, I don't know. <laughs> can't, can't imagine it myself, but... Um, Maybe he's just really boring. You know, it's the only thing going on. Uh, maybe he just is, is full of resentment. I mean, I'm using the word maybe here because the, the text doesn't give us a, a, a clear line. But, I mean, it's possible that, that Ham has gotten really fed up with, with Noah and his always being right. And now finally, look, my dad's made a buffoon of himself. I don't know. I mean, they spent a, a, a year on that ark. There's got to be some built-up you know, frustration somewhere. I don't know. Whatever underlies it, I think the fact that he goes and tells his brothers reveals that there is a a taking of joy in his father's state. He He has found something salacious and he is taking joy in it and he is trying to spread it around. And so we see again the problem with sin is that we sin with enjoyment. The problem with sin is that it comes with temptation. I mean, there's a want to in us that draws us into sin. There's an allure, there's a thrill, there's a delight. Sin offers something that we want. If sin wasn't tempting, we wouldn't be sinful. But every single one of us find in Sin, a prior temptation to do it. Some sense of joy on the other side of it. I think the anatomy of of sin is is portrayed well in Proverbs chapter 9, which describes the woman folly and her techniques. We read in Proverbs 9, 13 and following, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house, She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, 
calling to those who passed by who were going straight on their way, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and the bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Folly entices people with these words, stolen water is sweet. And you tell me why the mind wonders. Really? How sweet is that water? And why does the mind think the fact that it's forbidden, that it's stolen, that it's, that it's taboo, somehow raises it up in our mind with, with temptation and allure? Those, those, those words, stolen water is sweet, examine our soul. We sin because we see in sin a path of enjoyment. And because that is true, even when we rule the world, let me drop a truth bomb on you. If you ruled the world as Tony Bennett sings, you would be in bondage to pleasure. If you really look at Tony Bennett's song and all of his lyrics, it's totally godless. It's a, it's a vision of of, of himself being God. It's, it's an ode to idolatry. That is what comes when we dream of living in a world that we are in charge of. We are the God. And that, my friends, is the greatest sin that we seek. So we see that, that we have sin without excuse, we sin with ease, we sin with enjoyment. But fourth, I want us to notice that we sin without exception. I, I, I suppose there is someone here who has, has uh, felt unscathed, perhaps. <laughs> uh, although I, I've been slayed three times by now. But we also finally sin without exception. Let's look again at verses 24 to 27. So Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So this event, whatever Ham did, uh, Noah has, has slept it off. He wakes up, he recognizes that he has been humiliated. And he utters a curse on Canaan, the son of Ham. And he blesses his two other sons. Now this event is very significant in the, in the narrative of the, of the nation of Israel because as Israel becomes a nation rescued out of Egypt and they are given the promised land that are filled with the Canaanites, God tells the, the, the people under Moses that when they come into Canaan, that they are to judge by the sword the people of Canaan because their sin and their debauchery and their depravity had become so extreme that their time of judgment had come. And so uh, the Israelite that is reading this text recognizes that, that, that uh, being a descendant of Shem, which is what Israel is, that they are participating in the fulfillment of, of this uh, prophecy or, or curse and blessing by Noah. Now, it's kind of troubling what Noah does here. I mean, what, what kind of, what, what is he doing here? Is this, is this curse against Canaan, making Canaan 
a, a, a slave, making Canaan a, an object of judgment? I don't think that's the best way to read it. I think what, what uh, Noah is doing is he is proclaiming what we would call a descriptive curse, not a prescriptive curse. A prescriptive curse is the idea that you're going to become this because I have said it. A descriptive curse is because of what I see in you when it comes to fruition, this is your future. And so I believe Noah's curse is descriptive. He is saying, as the son of Ham, who has taken great joy in sin, you will become a very sinful people. You will walk in the ways of your fathers. And that will come to full fruit. You see, the defect that is exposed in Ham will manifest it in his offspring, the Canaanites. That's what I believe is being said here. And so we have already on the other side of the flood, curse. We remember in Genesis 3 that, that we leave Eden under a curse. And now in the new creation that is, that is Noah, we find curse. Curses on both sides of the flood. Even with a fresh start, there is only more curse upon the world. And this curse is only additive. Because as we look at verses 28 and 29, we recognize our true plight. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. As we've talked about in previous messages, those words, and he died, reminds us that we live under the curse of sin. We are in a world of sin because we are in a world of death. And Noah's last words in the Bible, and he died, reminds us that we are all under the curse of sin. We sin without exception. I've heard people say that they, they say, I'm a sinner because I sin, but the, the Bible's diagnosis is no, you sin because you are a sinner. We have all sinned without exception. And so Noah's story, as we have looked at, ends with him disgraced. The best of us has fallen again. Why must we read this? Why must we study this? Why must we seek to, to apply this? Because this chapter is given to us so that we do not make the mistake of thinking we can overcome the sin problem in ourselves. Even with everything in our favor, even if the whole world was yours to do over again, you would still be trapped under sin because we sin without excuse, we sin with ease, we sin with enjoyment, and we sin without exception. Beloved, Noah tells us that the phrase, I'm a good person, could damn you to hell. It could be the very thing that keeps you from being saved. I'm a good person will not save you. Remind yourself of what the young rich ruler heard when he came to Jesus and he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looks at him quizzically and says, Good? Why do you call me good? Only God in heaven is good. 
You see, when we look at Noah, we recognize whatever standard of goodness that we carry for ourselves, however we feel like we've possessed goodness, it is a relative goodness, and it is a diminished goodness, and it falls short for even Noah, the best of us, was unable to stand before God without sin. If we cannot hope in ourselves, what is our hope? And this is where I believe the gospel is revealed here. Noah shows we need a gifted righteousness and a new heart. And that's where the gospel is. This is the gospel, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 18 to 21. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men... So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Beloved, the path of Noah is a path that does not justify. It is in our text, it is in our scriptures to let us know that what we need is not a righteousness that comes by excuses or by our own justification, but that is imputed, that comes from outside, that comes to us as a gift of God's grace. And when we recognize that, when we recognize that all we can do in our condition is cry out for mercy as sinners, it is then that the light shines that the mercy that we require is the mercy of justification through Jesus Christ, whose obedience has fulfilled the righteousness that we require and whose suffering on the cross has removed the stain of unrighteousness that has disqualified us. Beloved, this is the gospel. The righteousness that you require is given by faith. The new heart that does not seek sin is given to you by faith. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Have you received this justification that does not come from within, but comes by grace alone? Amen? Thank you for listening. We hope you've been blessed by this sermon from River Community Church. We are a congregation of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church located in Prairieville, Louisiana, whose purpose is to help people live in and live out the good news of Jesus Christ. We welcome you to worship with us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. and to learn more about us at rivercommunity.org.